What's up, everyone? Welcome to another Div Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I won't be hosting today, um, but I'm here to say hello to you all. Uh, tell you about something cool that we're doing. So I'm coming to you all live today um, from Spain. We're in Bilbao, where I'm attending uh, the Wellness Summit, the Wellbeing Summit, uh, which is bringing together leaders in social change, government, arts, and business who are working at the intersection of social change and inner well-being. And so today, Ladarian and I are doing something really cool that we've been dreaming about for now two plus years. And that's seeing Tuesday Talk scale and be active in multiple locations at once. So while you all are having this amazing conversation celebrating AAPI month, uh, we'll be over here in Spain talking about uh, the importance of social justice and its connection to overall well-being. I want to give you guys just a quick view. So we are setting up, we'll actually kick off in about 15 or 20 minutes here, but you can kind of see a few of our speakers here. We've got a really cool cafe uh, that we took over for today's Tuesday Talk. Um, and couldn't be more excited about what we've got going on. Um, so with that said, I want to do our, our typical welcome, uh, and then I'm going to pass it over to Ladarian to carry an awesome session. Uh, so the Care Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Two Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. And we hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we center the leadership of women. And we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color in this platform. With that said, we're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programs. With that said, I want to pass it over to Ladarian to carry us through an amazing conversation today. Uh, we'll be cheering y'all on over here, and we're excited. Uh, the session that we're doing here in Spain today will be available for folks to play back later. Uh, so we hope that this can, uh, is just the beginning of our opportunity to continue to grow these conversations and grow our community. Good to see y'all. Happy API month. We'll catch y'all soon. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. All right, so let's jump right into it. So for today's conversation, we're celebrating AAPI Heritage Month. So Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month is observed annually in May to celebrate the contributions that generations of AAPIs have made to American history, society, and culture. The origin of AAPI Heritage Month dates back to the 95th Congress which is between 1977 and 1978, when five joint resolutions were introduced proposing that a week in May be designated to commemorate the accomplishment of AAPIs. This year's theme selected by the Federal Asian Pacific American Council is Advancing Leaders Through Collaboration, which builds on a leadership advancement theme series that began last year. So in today's conversation, we will give space to amazing and pioneering women who are part of the AAPI community and are finding different ways to highlight and uplift their community. So before we get started, let me introduce you to our wonderful speakers for this week. So first up, we have Erin Thazel. She is the Director of Asian Women Writers, an international organization that supports unpublished writers with mentorship from leading literacy agents and editors. She was formerly a visiting artist to the Judith E. Wilson Drama Studio in Cambridge, and her poetry is published by Face Press, among others. Welcome, Aram. Thank you so much for joining the conversation this week. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. 
<laughs> Next, we have Dr. Sarah Soonling Blackburn. She is an educator, speaker, writer, and professional learning facilitator. She is Learning for Justice's Associate Director for Learning in Schools. Her work focuses on identity, diversity, and justice with an emphasis on inclusion and belonging. Hi, Sarah, how are you? Hey, good to be here with y'all today. Thanks for joining us. And last up, we have Sina Weepy. She is the daughter of Scotty and Lena Weepy, sister to Lena Scott Jr., Sion, Adriana, and most importantly, auntie to Stanford, Joey, Connie, Ozzy, Adriana, Rocky, Lini, and Zion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she is a proud Tongan woman whose life compass continues to be shaped by the amazing women in her life and does not take the role of representing the native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities at the national level lightly. Sina, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're in um, commute, but thank you so much for being on. <laughs> we will see you shortly. Perfect. So before we dive into the conversation for today, we always like to start out the, um, the discussion with just a, a question to really ground us. Um, so the question is, can you all talk to us a little bit about the communities that you call home and the communities that you advocate for? So maybe let's start with Aram and then Sarah and then Sina last. Sure. Um, thanks, Darian. Um, well, I'm, I'm in London at the moment, so in, in a sense, I'm in terms of nationality, I'd say sort of English broadening out to British, the differences between those are kind of interesting. But where I feel most at home is just with creative people, and that can be from any background, even any field. So I currently work in technology, even though I started off in the arts. But even in the most hard science subjects, you can find really interesting creative people who see everything as an opportunity to be original and come up with something that's true to you. So that's kind of my home. Whenever, whenever I find anyone like that, I'm happy. Um, but the people I advocate for are Asian women through Asian women writers. So that's anyone, wherever you are in the world, wherever your heritage is from. So if you look at the Asian map in geographical terms, it's basically half the world. It's Korea, it's Palestine, it's India, so many different people and backgrounds and yeah, I just love doing what I do through Asian women writers because I get to just be exposed to all these amazing new cultures that I personally knew nothing about. So, Thank you, Erin. And I'm so excited for you to share a little bit more about your writing once we get into the conversation later. Um, Sarah, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for through your work? The home question has always been a really hard one for me. I grew up moving a lot. My dad was an American diplomat. Uh, my mother is Malaysian Chinese, and so I am what they call a third culture kid, somebody who grows up not in the community of their parents' um, birth, nor as part of the country that they're growing up in. We, you know, kids of diplomats and foreign journalists and, you know, international business people kind of fit into this category. And so the question of like, where are you from? Where's home? Has always been a really tough one. Um, but in many ways, the answer is, there are two answers to it. The first is, um, Malaysia, my grandmother's house. My family is Malaysian Chinese, which means that they um, left China several generations ago, moved to Southeast Asia and have been there. So we are ethnically Chinese, but are Malaysian. And there are all the stories of um, multiculturalism that go with that experience, British colonialism as well and so on. But I've lived most of my life in the deep South of the United States. I moved here in 2009 and have been here basically ever since. Um, and so 
in oddly, strangely, maybe based on, um, you know, having come up in Kuala Lumpur and Tokyo and Beijing, um, Mississippi is home in a lot of ways. And that relates to who I advocate for. I am an educator, first and foremost. And so I ad advocate for young people, and particularly young people who um, are growing up in what we would consider marginalized communities, places that um, don't necessarily have access to the same resources as other places, access to resources both in terms of physical materials and also just knowledge, opportunities, um, all of that. So that is both where I'm from and who I advocate for. Love it. Thank you so much, Sarah, for, for sharing with us. And Sina, what about you? What communities do you call home and who are you advocating for? Thank you so much, Ladarian, for, for having me. I apologize. I'll, I will be on camera soon. I'm currently commuting. I'm back in the West Coast. I'm usually in the East Coast in DC, um, but I, I've been commuting back and forth. Um, home is definitely uh, Southern California, Los Angeles. California, that is where I was born and raised. Um, also want to acknowledge the land that I'm currently on, which is Tongva land. Um, home is family, home is also um, a lot of my mentors and, and especially the women in my life that kind of continue to help shape um, a lot of my values and, and, um, and things that I usually like to bring into my workspace. Um, who I advocate for um, is the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community, um, specifically on the US continent. Um, we are a vast majority of a community, especially throughout the United States, but also in the Pacific as well. Um, Ethnically, I am Tongan American. My parents are from the Kingdom of Tonga, which is one of the last standing monarchies in the South Pacific. Um, and just like many other groups um, of people, the Pacific Islander community is not a monolith. Um, we are very diverse. Um, and so it's really important um, and uh, for the work I do at Epic to be able to represent um, the diaspora um, here on the continent for um, NHPI communities. Thank you so much, Sina. And thank you for sharing a little bit more about your background. So I think today's conversation really is very much around heritage, kind of history and culture. So I'm super excited for us to hear from, from Aram and Sarah who are both kind of in that creative space. So I may have our first question go out to Sarah just to give us a little bit of context and share a little bit more with us. So Sarah, um, thinking about kind of the untold stories, can you share a little bit with us about the book that you're working on currently to really highlight some of the different stories and experiences that people within the Chinese American culture um, are experiencing? Sure. So when I do workshops and talks um, with people, sometimes I ask, you know, what did you learn about Asian people when you were in school? Or what did you learn about Pacific Islander communities when you were in school? And usually the answers are um, like nothing or not much. Um, certainly in the US, people might say, oh, Japanese internment, or they might say uh, railroads, right? Um, Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander communities tend to be erased completely from the narrative. Central and Western Asian stories tend to be erased completely from the narrative. Most Southeast Asian stories tend to be 
um, erased as well. And that is a problem. A survey that was published a couple weeks ago asked Americans to name a famous Asian American. And the number one response at 68% was, I don't know, which is really disturbing. The number two response was Jackie Chan, um, you know, who is Asian, but does not identify as American. The number three response was Bruce Lee, um, who, you know, died uh, quite a while ago now. So if the answer is, I don't know, and then two martial artists who don't even really fit the question, then that really goes to highlight how dangerous this invisibility is, that if we don't have examples of who people really are, then the stereotypes fill in those gaps. The um, media messages about who people are and who they aren't fill in those gaps. So something I've been working on, I've been really lucky to be part of a series that's going to be published, I think, starting later this year, although mine, my book is in the second part of the series. Um, which is called Race to Truth, and I'm working on the, um, the Chinese American story, the truth about Chinese American history, exclusion and belonging, and tracing those two themes, the active exclusion, the active violence against Chinese American communities that has happened historically, and today, we're seeing it today as well. And also, anytime we see stories of exclusion, stories of oppression, we also see stories of resistance. And one thing I really wanted to um, make a point of highlighting is how even within our various Asian and Pacific Islander communities, there have always been people resisting. There have always been people fighting for justice for themselves and for other communities. There have always been stories of solidarity. And if we're going to overturn some of these um, stereotypes of like passive, apolitical, whatever, um, AAPI peoples, then we have to also elevate stories of strength, stories of connection, of um, collective power, and really help that question when people are asked, you know, name a famous Asian American. So the answer is not, I don't know, but can be kind of this whole wide range of, you know, beautiful, wonderful, people that make up our various communities. Thank you for that, Sarah. And thank you for giving us a little bit of context too, just on the, the history. And I think um, some of the lack of history, right? Especially here in America, we really appreciate that. Aram, I wanna pull you back into the conversation as well. So you work within the creative space. Um, you're the director, founder of Asian Women Writers. Can you chat with us a little bit about the world of publishing, how it works and how your organization is creating a space um, for Asian American and Pacific Islander women in particular to kind of enter that space and be able to compete with other writers across um, the US? Sure, so I think the publishing industry can seem quite mysterious um, and only in recent years has it deliberately made efforts to open up. Um, but if you want to, to be traditionally published, which means to see your book in Barnes and Nobles and physical copy, um, then you'd have to go down the route of literary agent and publisher. The other avenue is self-publishing. That's kind of an ebook Amazon sort of route, but that's something slightly different. But um, if you wanted to work with us or Asian women writers, we'd be able to introduce you to um, either a literary agent um, or a publisher. We have um, excellent agents based in America. Um, and that first step would be to be accepted by them to work on your manuscript together. So once you've written your novel or your nonfiction book, you would send it out to different agents, choosing very specifically people who are interested in your subject and your area. 
And once you're represented by them, they can help negotiate with publishers and hopefully get you a really good contract for one or more books. And then maybe a year or two later, you'd then hopefully see your book in that Barnes and Noble store. So that's a very simplified picture. It can take many sort of left and right turns along the way. Um, no, but yeah. And Aram, I will add, can you, I guess, highlight for us maybe some of the challenges um, that women within the community face and maybe how your organization specifically works with them to ensure that they can overcome some of those barriers that they might run into? Yeah, I think awareness is a big part of it. So I've had certain privileges in my own education. I've been around the these people who sort of run publishing, but I myself had no idea until I started this organization the sort of ins and outs of it. So just explaining the process, making it, making it clear how easy and open and genuinely accessible it is, because I think especially now, publishers are seeking out interesting, unique stories that previously, even you know, a couple of years ago, wouldn't have come up on their radar. They wouldn't think readers would be interested in um, Malaysian mythology, which is what, especially in the fantasy area, it's really interesting to see these ancient mythologies being incorporated into stories. And it's kind of unique because it's just never been explored before in the English language. Um, I think it's partly just historical. So we're currently at a stage where we have second generation migrants, people living in the Euro in Europe and English speaking countries. So that gives us an access that we didn't previously have to these um, stories that were locked behind language barriers. But I think what we can do is firstly introduce you, but also build a community. And so far since February, we've helped 30 writers and they're all, they're all featured on our website. So you can see just the range we have um, and through social media, everyone's supporting everyone, getting a sense of confidence. So even if you're, you don't immediately get signed with an agent, you feel it's a possibility. You know the routes to take, you know the resources available to you. And you feel that this isn't a closed off world only for a certain type of person. Thank you for that, Aram. So I want to build on this kind of thought around building communities, working with communities, empowering communities. And Sina, I want to pull you in um, to the conversation here around policy and advocacy. So Sina, can you share with us some policy issues that are really close to your heart and how you're finding ways to advocate for solutions while also empowering communities? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so today, uh, surprisingly, um, or I guess coincidentally kind of, um, we actually have uh, EPIC in conjunction with um, many of our national partners um, based in Washington, DC. We have a virtual meeting with the Office of Management and Budget, which is one of the federal agencies um, that has a lot of influence um, and power when it comes to data disaggregation. Um, and so data disaggregation is um, and has always been a top priority for EPIC, um, even before I uh, came on board um, as staff. And it's something that the organization has been advocating for for many, many years. Um, it wasn't until the 2020 um, sorry, the 2000 census of uh, when Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders were actually um, had their own categories on the actual census form, separate from the Asian American community. Before that, they it was always grouped together. And so that's just one specific example that I can give 
as far as data equity and data disaggregation being a priority for us, for us. Um, and it's it's literally in our organization's DNA. Like our organization started in 2009, um, and so many of our founding members were really called upon by Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander elders in the community to really address um, the urgency of making sure that we had our own data um, because we were getting lost in, in the narrative and uh, aggregated data. Um, and, and I wanna say even to this day is, is harmful to NHPI communities because it doesn't reflect the lived um, experiences that our communities face. Um, and so the role that Epic has had to play is both at the local state and, um, and national level, especially in recent years of really making sure that not only are we uh, advocating for our communities um, at the national level, especially with federal agencies like the Office of Management and, uh, and Budget, but also making sure that we uh, listen to what our elders say and listen to what a lot of our community partners are telling us. Um, and a lot of that is really a lot of what we advocate for in our policies, especially around data disaggregation, is shaped by community input. And so that's always been um, a uh, of importance to us. Thank you for that, Sina. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been continuously brought up in all of our Tuesday talks is the importance um, of data and having data that speaks specifically to different communities, right? Um, and takes into account that there are differences in communities, right? Things that happen here in the South may be very different from what happens in the Midwest and to be able to have that data aggregated so that it's able to be shown. Um, so thank you for sharing. I think data is so important and sometimes we forget about it, right? And we think more so to highlight stories, which are very important as well, but it's definitely a place to have both of them um, when you wanna make change happen. So thank you for that, Sina. Sarah, I wanna pull you back in here as well. So one of the things we talked about in preparation for this conversation is just that you love advocating for the youth um, and you work within that education space and always wanna make sure that that's something kind of top of mind for you. Can you share with us how educators are creating space for students to learn about and deal with current events that might be difficult to comprehend or even scary for them to think about. I think all of us on the call have seen um, a number of different news articles or, or read things, right? That's very shocking that's happening here in the US or around the world. Um, so we'd love for you to share with us how educators are creating a safe space for students to also kind of deal with some of the things that they're going through and seeing on the news. That is such a timely question because it has been, it's been a really hard, um, gosh, not just week or so, but, you know, it's been a really hard couple of years. I think about um, my youngest, he's, he just finished second grade last week, and he's basically has never had a school year that wasn't affected by COVID. And there are so many kids who are in similar situations where they're already um, feeling heightened. And then there's like, bad things continue to happen outside of what they're already dealing with and managing. And that can be hard. One thing that is perhaps unfortunate, but is, is important to name is that kids tend to be aware of the exact same things that we are, whether or not, you know, we want to admit it. So they are, um, 
walking past and hearing the news that's playing on the radio, right? They're overhearing friends who are talking about something happening. They're sharing, if they're a little older and they have access to social media, they're sharing stories and getting takes from lots of different places about what's happening. And sometimes as adults, our instinct is to to protect them from it by pretending it's not happening. You know, oh, I don't want them to have to think about this. It's too painful, it's too difficult. Unfortunately, that, that silence doesn't take away their fear or their anger or their concern. All it does is make them feel more lonely in that fear or that anger or concern. So as educators, as teachers, um, it's important that we are creating environments, creating spaces where young people feel like they can be safe or safer to ask and explore and to hold whatever the feelings are that they may be having. I would so much rather my child have a facilitated conversation in the classroom with an educator who I know, with their classmates, their friends who I know, than reading whatever it is on social media that, you know, XYZ random person's cousin shared that they're getting that person's opinion instead. Um, so we strongly advocate for just having the conversation. Um, that That is huge. It can help young people recognize that it's okay to have whatever the emotional reaction is that they might be having about it and to also empower them to do something about it. That's the other thing. Sometimes kids feel like it's so overwhelming and that there's nothing they can do and why aren't the adults fixing this? And helping young people recognize that, that actually most of the biggest civil rights and social justice movements um, that and changes that have happened have involved young people. The lunch counter sit-ins, those were led by young people. John Lewis was so young when he walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. There are so many moments throughout history and, and through so many countries and cultures where young people have really led the way. So how do we help our young people recognize that legacy and that they have so much more power sometimes than they realize they do in also creating positive change? Thanks, Sarah. Um, shameless plug here. We actually have a racial justice experience where we're taking a group of students to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in a few days. So thanks so much, Sarah, for, for giving the shout out there. <laughs> um, but one of the things you talked about is really around, I think, the power of partnership, right? And just making sure that no matter who it is or what organization or what government system that, that everybody can play a role in this, right? And we've seen that youth in particular have been a crucial part of some of the largest movements we see in, in the world. So just building on that idea of partnerships, Sina, um, pulling you back in here around the power of partnerships and how Epic uses that to kind of elevate its work and in particular um, deal with some different policies and really move some things across the finish line. Can you share some recent examples of policies that you all have worked on um, and what it's done or its impact on the communities? You may have lost Cena for a second. Cena, are you still with us? All right, well, while Cena gets set back up with her audio, I know she was in transit. Um, Aaron, I'm gonna go back to you. So we're gonna switch gears just a little bit and build a little bit more on the creative side. So Aaron, one of the really cool things we talked about before this conversation was the fact that you're working on a novel. So would love for you to share a little bit more about that and how you're finding ways to still um, be in a creative space, but also be in your, your science and software engineer space at the same time 
while kind of sharing and shaping a really cool story. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so as I said, I've recently become a software engineer. It completely sort of changed my sort of field of work, but I was fascinated by what I found there because my sort of preconceived perception was that the arts and the sciences were these separate spheres that kind of did their own thing and that had their own values. So maybe the scientific community didn't value arts and culture in the same way, partly because I think the higher education system is specialized. Um, and then that kind of leads to funding channels being sort of separate. Um, but when I came across software engineers, spent time around them, I just was struck by how passionate they are about their own cultural lives and how much they invest in the arts, even though they might not even label it that themselves. So if you look at the level of sophistication you get in video games these days, they're hiring really skilled writers to build these really intricate, sophisticated narratives that can engage a player for hours or days or weeks, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, nowadays we do have like NFTs and that kind of digital art space, but there's also like fantasy literature and things that really um, just, they kind of become obsessive about it. And these are like hardcore scientists who love art in my eyes. So I wanted to kind of bridge that gap a little bit in my own work. Um, so I'm writing a novel about a woman who encounters technology and also space technology. So inspired by the work of SpaceX and others, um, and it falls under the genre of speculative literature. So rather than science fiction, um, because it's using what's hopefully going to become reality in the next decade or so, um, the ability to go to other planets and expand society out in those ways. Um, but what is hopefully a little bit different is that it's just focusing on the character and the human element a lot more than you might find in traditional sci-fi. So it's, in, what I'm attempting to do is to treat technology almost like a character in its own right. And you sometimes hear that being spoken about setting or place or town, which can have that kind of really detailed emotional impact on a reader. But I'm doing that kind of for technology and giving it that degree of respect and space and enough time for the reader to kind of hopefully reflect on the impact that technology will have and how we, the ethical decisions involved in allowing complex um software whether it's ai or not into our daily lives and what that might actually involve so erin so this question is a little off script but as a software engineer i would love to hear your thoughts on where you think technology is going as far as ai goes um maybe <laughs> where you think it's going what your or hopes are for it um and what maybe some of the challenges might be around it yeah i mean that's a huge question but um <laughs> I think it's, it's already in our lives without us realizing. So the, the most standard um, household object has AI somewhere going on. Um, I think the, the leaps and bounds are going to come. And when they do come, that's going to be pretty sudden, pretty immediate. So at the moment, that stage where they can delineate between what a computer can do and what a human can do. And the strength that a human has is the ability to be creative and to strategize. So what we've seen over the past maybe half a century is the movement towards jobs that are more technical, technically focused. But I think there's a, a turn away from that, valuing what a human can provide over what a machine can do. Because the machines can take care of all the mundane tasks that we don't want to do. So using the example of Tesla, who we know for cars, they're building a robot, a humanoid robot at scale. They're going to be releasing that, working on that this year. Um, and if everybody has a household robot taking care of all the tasks you don't want to do, then that gives you a lot of time to do who knows what. And the prediction is that 
it will give us all the opportunity to explore the more creative side of life for ourselves. Um, and I think that will be both consuming art and also creating art. So it doesn't mean that we're all going to become Picasso tomorrow, but it does mean that there'll be sort of lower, lower level in terms of grassroots conversations happening between, oh, hey, I've read you know, a really interesting book that I wouldn't have had the time to before. Let's talk about it. Let's engage in subjects that we thought were somehow beyond us because it wasn't within our realm of specialization. So. Love it. Thanks, Aram. I know that was a, a random question to throw in. I just had to get your thoughts on that. It's just, it's such an no, interesting- it is, it is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spectre. yeah. <laughs> We might have to do another Tuesday talk on that one. So just know I might ping you to join a future conversation on that. <laughs> Perfect. Hi, Sina. Looks like we have you back now. I'm going to loop you right back in. Um, I had a question for you around kind of the power of partnerships and how Epic is using that to kind of elevate its work and maybe some examples around policy initiatives that you all have been working or pushing for? Yeah, thank you for your question and thank you for your patience. Um, yeah, so some things, I, I feel like the, one of the most recent examples that I can give, especially around, um, um, around making sure that it's not just Epic, you know, representing um, the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander community, but making sure we bring in as many partners um, uh, as much as we can in, in any issue that we address um, is uh, COVID-19. Um, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders were, still are actually, um, one of the most disproportionate communities impacted by COVID-19. Um, we've had the highest um, infection rates um, since 2020, um, since COVID has started. Um, and also we've had some of the highest death rates as well. Um, all that to say that there was an urgency for many of our community partners and leaders, both at the local and state level that really came together to rally around demanding uh, data disaggregation at the local and state levels, um, especially when it came to um, our community and the data that was being given from uh, the local and state um, public health departments were not reflective of the actual reality of, of how our community was being impacted. Um, and so that was a collective effort. Um, and that didn't necessarily happen at the federal level. So we really were working from the ground up um, to make sure that um, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, one of the other federal agencies was aware of that. Not only that, but we needed to make sure that Congress knew about it as well because Congress had a role in uh, making sure um, that there was, um, resources distributed, right, to all communities. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders were part of that conversation. Um, and so I think as a result of the collective effort from our community partners um, at the local and state level, and essentially, um, you know, having our own data out of UCLA, um, which, is called the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander um, Data and Policy Lab. 
um, really highlight the states that do disaggregate our data. And so the numbers actually might be higher, you know, because most states don't disaggregate our data. Um, and so I think as a result of that, and also as a result of putting pressure on Congress as well to make sure that we were seen and heard, um, uh, really made a difference in us getting the resources that not only the resources that we needed to make sure that we were getting the word out about uh, just general information about COVID, but also um, making sure we achieve, um, you know, vaccine confidence, um, especially with a lot of our elders in the community, um, and just a lot of our young people as well. And so I think um, it's something that we're continuing to work on because I just saw on the news uh, this morning, actually, that the cases are going back up. Um, and so um, you know, a lot of our communities live in states like, uh, or have large populations in places like California, Utah, uh, Washington State, or, uh, Arizona, Oregon, a lot of those states have a lot of NHPI communities. And so um, it's really important for us to make sure, especially around health equity, essentially, that um, we are advocating for those things. Sina, thank you so much for highlighting that. I think um, there have been a few communities kind of left out of this data portion around COVID and it's, it's scary, right? Because it has an impact on their ability to get information um, and resources as well. So thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, we have a few questions in the chat for you all. I'm gonna pass it over to one of my colleagues, Gabby, who was helping co-host this week. Um, it's, it's a team effort. Hey, Gabby. She has a few questions for you all, so we'll go through some of those. Hi, thank you ladies for so much. Everything has been extremely insightful and I will definitely say I have learned a lot as well. Um, we have a few questions here that we have, wanna get all of your opinion on. The first one is how are you all finding and creating joy for yourself? And this could be anything from like time with your family, like cooking, binge watching any shows, um, Aram, we'll, we'll start with you, followed by Sarah and then Sina. Sure. So, um, yeah, since post-COVID, we can now do what we like. So I've been spending time with friends again um, and um, I'm writing a play with a friend and that's like just the most fun ever. So in terms of like how you spend time with someone, I think creating something together is just a really great way to get to know them and just, yeah, hopefully end up with something that we're proud of. Um, and in order to do that, we I do watch loads of uh, TV and movies. Um, making an effort to go back and watch classics that I've kind of missed over the years. Um, had a bit of a Robert Pattinson binge recently because I hadn't really watched much of his stuff. He's done some really interesting, unusual movies as well as the blockbusters. Um, and I just love seeing good acting, whether that's on stage um, or on film. So I got out to see them play called Jerusalem that's been revived just recently in London with Mark Rylance, who's again, an amazing actor. So yeah, that's what I enjoy. Awesome, thank you. Sarah, what about you? Um, well, <laughs> realizing that I probably need to be doing more <laughs> to just, you know, decompress and think about um, things that are joyful and not always being focused on 
um, uh, problems that need to be fixed, which I think is just where my head's been a lot, at least this last week, for sure. Um, my kids just finished school last week. They're out for the summer. So it's been really nice to just watch them chill for a second and trying to force myself to do that too. Yesterday, I took my laptop and sat outside while they were playing and running around and doing things. Um, and that felt really good. It's it's not quite too hot in Mississippi yet. So I'm trying to spend as much time in the outdoors as possible before it gets um, really bad. But the thing that I'm really looking forward to is I haven't seen my grandmother um, since before the COVID pandemic started. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Malaysia to see her for the first time in more than two years. I miss her. She turned 90 last year. And I'm just really, really, really excited that I get to have that opportunity to see her. That's awesome. That's so awesome. All right, Sina, what about you? Um, rest. <laughs> that is something that I don't get enough of and that I've been trying to be better about um, at least this year. Um, and actually during this Heritage Month, um, there was when I was in DC um, the last couple of weeks. It's it's been a really crazy busy month, and so um, so there were a few in person events that I attended, and so everyone I had gone to, I um, would see you know a lot of the same colleagues and whatnot. And my question was always to them: Are you getting any rest? <laughs> um, and that's I'm also like advocating for that via email too, and. Um, yeah, so I feel like when I, um, you know, tell friends and colleagues about um, the importance of getting rest, like, that's also me telling that to myself. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, like both physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, just rest as, as a whole. Um, because I, I, I am of the same belief that we can't be our whole selves unless we are getting the rest that we need. Um, and we won't even be able to help our communities unless we're getting the rest that we need to, to refuel. So that's absolutely perfect, Sina. Okay, we have one more, actually have a couple more questions for you ladies. Um, building on the statement that 68% of Americans cannot name a famous or influential Asian American, if the three of you had to list um, three your top three most influential Asian Americans over the past decade, who would they be? And we can start with, the, I'll give you a few minutes to think, and then we'll start with Aram and then Sarah followed by Sina. Sarah, 58% is still bad. It is still bad. I put it in the chat. I misspoke. So it's 58%, okay. but that is still. Yes, it's still terrible. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, while we give the speakers a minute um, to, to think about this, I have one of my people ready to go. So I hope you guys don't mind me throwing it out there. Um, one of my favorite actresses is Sandra Oh. I have been a Grey's Anatomy fan for... 10 years now, maybe nine, nine or 10 years. And I am still wishing for the day for Christina to come back to Grey's Anatomy. So I just, I had to throw that out there. I, I love her. She's so beautiful. I feel like now 
Um, some of the shows she do she does is totally different than Grey's Anatomy, and I'm trying to get into them so I can still support her. But she's a fabulous actress, and I I love her so much. So sorry, didn't mean to take away from the speakers, but no, no you're all good. <laughs> I was gonna do mine too, Ladaria. <laughs> she's awesome. Um, yeah, I can start. I don't know if Kamala Harris counts because she does have Indian heritage, I believe. So yeah, she's pretty influential. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think she calls herself black, I think. I'm not sure. But um, I think she's, personally, I think she's, she has, she has her challenges at the moment. Obviously, it's a very diff difficult job with a lot of competing uh, pressures on you. But I think seeing her in that position with that role, role uh, has, has been really powerful, just as an image, if nothing else. Um, my second is also a politician, Andrew Yang. I don't know if he's sort of big news. Yeah, but I kind of I've seen him just through the internet mainly. But I think he's like really exciting in terms of what he's bringing to the table, the ability to move beyond left and right and to actually start a meaningful conversation, I think will be really healthy for America uh, really broadly. Um, yeah, I don't know if a British Asian can count, be so kind of sneak one in there, I'm not sure. You but, can uh, totally sneak it in there. <laughs> uh, just a, maybe Ishiguri, uh, just the author, Kazuo Ishiguri, just... I just really admire his ability to move between different genres um, and just be taken seriously as a writer first. He doesn't write about being Asian. You know, what, what's it like today being Asian as a presentation to a non-Asian audience, which can sometimes be a box that you put put in. Like explain what it means to be Asian to essentially European heritage people. Um, and I think he just writes whatever interests him. So his most recent book, Clara and the Sun, as if, again, going back to the AI story, it's about a child who has uh, a robot companion because she has like a quite long-term illness and she needs that kind of support, but it's set in the future and it raises interesting questions about how you relate to people who aren't people, as in these ro robot versions of humans. Um, and he, he's done a lot for uh, the respect given to Asian writers, I think. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Those are, um, yeah, I also felt like it would be important to mention at least Kamala Harris. I mean, she does claim her Indian heritage and the fact that our vice president is a South Asian woman, or at least partly um, a South Asian woman, and people are still saying they don't know a famous Asian American is like, well, but that's okay. Um, more people answered her this year than the previous year, but that I don't know if that's much solace. Um, somebody who I, it's maybe not contemporary, but whose story I really want to be told more often is Grace Lee Boggs, who um, really advocated for Black freedom as well as for the rights of Asian, AAPI, people of lots of different backgrounds. I think sometimes we lose the narrative um, of cross-racial solidarity because we hear so many narratives of division between various communities of color. And so Grace Lee Boggs is somebody who really did strongly voice the human rights of all people. And it's just somebody who I aspire towards um, learning more from and being more like. And then I have to give a really quick little plug, also maybe not American, but for Michelle Yeoh, who is a Chinese, Malaysian Chinese person like myself, whose career is just going through this wonderful resurgence right now. If you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once, 
run, don't walk to go see it. It wrecked me. I don't know if it healed me or broke me further, but I um, just, it got so much out of that movie. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. And lastly, Sina. Um, I'm, I'm just going to name some uh, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander folks that I feel like the majority of folks may not or may or may not know about already. Um, one um, whom I really look up to and, and actually is um, a lot of the work that of someone who Epic really looks to is um, uh, Native Hawaiian uh, activist and educator, author and poet, um, Haunani K. Trask. Um, she was, she had so much conviction in standing up for Native Hawaiian um, uh, rights and, and Native Hawaiian people. And so that is someone that we, one of many um, that we kind of lean on um, when, when we need to. Um, and then um, I'm gonna just move to like the pop culture side of things. Uh, Taika Waititi is a Maori filmmaker. Um, he's actually um, starred in some American films and I think he actually produces um, a TV show called What We Do in the Shadows on Hulu. It's hilarious. Um, and so it's one of my favorite shows. Uh, so that's, um, that's um, on the film side of things. And I'm only going to say this because I saw her in person, um, Ali'i Kravahal, um, from who played uh, Moana in the movie, uh, Disney's Moana. So, um, yeah. One of the best Disney movies ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, ladies. Um, we have one more question for you all. How are you all celebrating AAPI Heritage Month and um, just tell us what it really means to you. Um, yeah, for, for me, the what we've had our first uh, book being sold to a publisher, which is pretty exciting. So, I mean, every day on um, social media, we're people are posting uh, exciting things just about Asia, their Asian experiences, which is really interesting to see. But we've had a writer sell her book to HarperCollins, and that will come out next year. And then we've also had another writer who is now represented by a leading US literary agency. Um, so yeah, that was both big milestones for us. Um, what does it mean? I think I think once you start looking at like how many letters are required, like what does it mean to be Asian is such a big geographical area, but then the cultural differences within that. I think as the world orientates itself towards Asia Pacific, just naturally through economic forces and other things it's just going to become a huge like, wealth of traditional stories but also the engagement of tradition with modernity as we're seeing and the tensions that arise and the opportunities for new versions of how we can live in a contemporary society so yeah I'm just really enjoying this journey so far and uh, excited to see where it goes perfect Sarah what about you well, I'm always a little bit in the history brain. So I've been thinking a lot about the um, historical roots of our collective identities, Asian American, AAPI, ANHPI, APIDA, whatever acronym um, 
you know, you are using to be as inclusive as possible and recognizing that there is power in those collective identities, that these come from activist movements of the late 1960s, young people, again, the students looking to each other, recognizing there is something really similar about the experiences we're having here in the United States. Perhaps we could, you know, by joining together, we can gain more power, more um, uh, collective support for one another, even though we, our countries back home might have centuries of historic beef and conflict with one another. Elevating that and elevating the diversity and difference that exist within those umbrellas. Because I believe that we can and we must hold both concepts at the same time, that it is possible to say there is a collective, there is power in the collective, and there is so much difference. I want to echo and elevate Sina's calls for disaggregating data. Um, it is so important. During equal pay day posts and things on social media a couple months ago, there were so many times where um, it was like, oh, Asian women, on average, they're making a dollar and one cent to every white man's dollar. Look at how great they're doing. As soon as you disaggregate that data, you recognize there are some groups that are doing well. There are a lot of policy reasons for that. And there are many groups that are struggling that are making 50 cents to that dollar. So during this month, I really want to and have been trying to advocate for that kind of like both understanding and recognizing that it doesn't have to be a binary. We don't have to all be like lumped together and all the same all the time. And we don't have to say that we don't have shared experiences and, and identities either, that we really can understand and highlight both points. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that, Sarah. And Sina, what about you? Yeah, um, so it's actually one of, the busiest months for us, um, surprisingly. Um, but I mean, for for Epic, uh, every month is Heritage Month. Um, it's just May is just like amplified because we get pulled into so many different directions. Um, and I, I definitely want to acknowledge all the work that many Pacific Islander organizations, but also um, AA um, PI organizations are doing this month as well. Um, how I'm celebrating um, is I actually had an opportunity to speak um, at a White House Data Equity Summit last week, which was pretty awesome. Um, I didn't realize how big of a deal it was until my family got hold of the YouTube link and was like, why didn't you tell this? Um, and so being back home in the West Coast, um, it's nice to, you know, have my family tell me how proud of, of the, uh, how proud they are of me. Um, I'm very humble about my work that I do. I don't <laughs> um, like to tell them a lot of things, um, but yeah, so that was, that was something that I'll always remember, um, especially during this Heritage Month. Awesome, perfect, thanks for sharing. And Sina, you can definitely share the YouTube link with us too. Um, you, you should be celebrated. You should don't be afraid to just share exactly what you're doing. You should definitely be celebrated for all of the work that you're doing to impact our communities. Um, thank you, ladies, so much for joining us. Thank you to Aram, to Dr. Sarah Soon Ling, and Sina. Um, we really hope to see you guys next week as well on June 7th. We will have a conversation on prison reform and mass incarceration. Um, but definitely thank you, ladies, for your time today and just really lacing us all with some gems on what you're doing in your respective organizations and then how we as a community 
can really impact and uplift um, everyone in our, in our areas, in our communities too. Um, I'll pass it back to Ladarian. Thanks, Gabby. So um, I'll close this out quickly, but if you all are able to turn your cameras on or unmute yourself, I'd love to give a round of applause to all the speakers. You all were amazing. Thanks for joining us and joining us after um, a holiday day here in the US. Aram, I know you're up um, in Britain, so a little different for you, but here in the US, we celebrate a holiday on Monday, so a lot of people on vacation. So really appreciate you all for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us. So we'll keep the chat open in case people still wanna drop a couple links. Sina, we are looking for that YouTube link. If you don't drop it, I will ping you. I have your cell phone number. I'm gonna get that link so we can share it out with people. Um, I'm gonna pass it over to DJ Sophie. He's gonna close us out with some amazing tunes. <laughs> 